TAP students, welcome to Chapter 3, Planning and Assessing Units, Lessons, and Activities. By the end of this chapter, I really hope that you will feel comfortable doing some of these things. Identifying and creating measurable objectives, aligning standards, objectives, and assessments, identifying the three types of assessment, giving examples of informal and formal assessment, determining appropriate assessments, and using and evaluating a rubric to determine its validity and usefulness. Some of these things you already know and have experience with, but like anything else, we're always refining our craft. So although this could be a lot of review for some of you, uh, usually about this time in the program is when some of this stuff just starts to all come together. So it's never a, a bad thing to review. Some of our essential questions that we will um, that we'll explore during this chapter are, what makes a good lesson plan? How do standards relate to objectives? How do objectives then relate to the assessments? Why are social studies units typically integrated? And then basically, why do we need to assess students? Often the phrase planning a unit strikes fear into the heart of pre-service teachers. Units require a great deal of planning and alignment of standards, objectives, activities, and assessments is key to assure the students will learn what is intended. The hardest part usually centers around this question, where do I start? In this chapter, we will explore how to choose standards, write measurable objectives, and create valid assessments that will show us if our students have mastered the objectives. Section one, constructing a lesson. Like the framework of a house, a lesson has a particular structure that holds it all together. Also like a house, if the framework isn't strong, the lesson will collapse, often causing frustration for the students and providing an authentic learning experience for the teacher. Spending time to develop a strong lesson framework will pay dividends for you and your students. The framework of a solid lesson is composed of three essential parts, the standard, the objective, and the assessment. These three components must be aligned for the lesson to be considered successful. The model of unit planning that is used in social studies instruction is called backwards design. Backwards design starts with identifying standards that are to be taught within the unit. This usually involves asking yourself, what knowledge and or skills do I want my students to have at the end of this unit? Units often address several standards, including ones from other subject areas. Integrating multiple content areas within a unit of study not only makes the most of your instructional time, but it often creates a richer learning experience for students. The second step in backwards design is creating learning objectives based on the standards. There may be multiple objectives written for each standard depending upon the complexity of the standard or what the teacher wants to focus on. The third step is creating valid assessments that will show the pre-service teacher if the student has mastered the objectives of the lesson and or unit. 
Usually, there are several informal formative assessments throughout the course of the unit. These give the students plenty of practice with the new knowledge and or skills they are acquiring before they must pull it all together for a summative assessment at the end of the unit. Then and only then can you plan instructional activities that will lead students to an understanding of the objectives. Once these bones of the lesson are in place, the instructional sequences can then be developed. There are three phases of a standard lesson plan, engagement, content delivery, and guided practice. Another way to think about this is by applying the 5E instructional model. This model is based on the constructivist approach to learning, which says that learners build or construct new ideas on top of their old ideas. Here's a short explanation for each of the parts of the model. The first E is for engage. This is the phase that begins a lesson. It usually involves a type of short activity that is meant to activate prior knowledge and focus students' thinking on the content of the lesson. Good engagement activities include asking relevant and thought-provoking questions, holding discussions, showing a short video, or giving a demonstration that creatively focuses students' attention on the lesson. The second E is for explore. In this phase, students actively explore and or manipulate the new material. The teacher may read a book to the students, have them research topic, or use manipulatives to model a concept. The third E is for explain. After exploring the new concepts, students now attempt to verbalize their learning or demonstrate new skills. At this point, teachers can also introduce new vocabulary to help students give formal language to their exploratory findings. This can be accomplished using small discussion groups, taking formal notes, or completing vocabulary exercises to enhance the new terms and concepts. The fourth E is for elaborate. At this phase, students now have the opportunity to apply the new learning to new experiences. Through these experiences, the student's depth of knowledge on the topic broadens and deepens. This phase gives students practice with the new knowledge and or skills in an environment where the teacher can give immediate corrective feedback. And finally, the fifth E means evaluate. Once the students have had plenty of time to practice a skill or think about the new knowledge, an appropriate assessment is crafted for students to show their understanding of the lesson objectives. This can take many forms and varies widely depending upon the preference of the teacher, but also on the interests of the students. The assessment should show the teacher if the student has mastered the lesson objectives. After all of this has been developed, the last thing to do is create accommodations and or modifications for the students in your classroom who have an Individualized Education Program, or IEP, or for regular education students who need the extra support. Section 2, Writing Objectives, a review. Clear objectives are essential to a lesson. However, writing them can be confusing. Do I have a measurable verb? Is it too broad? 
too specific. One way to test your objective is to apply the SMART acronym. Is it specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-based? So we've got a bit of an activity here. And if you're driving or doing something else that requires you to have your hands, you might just want to kind of think about these um, before, before the activity or as we're kind of talking about them. But if you do have uh, you know, a sticky note or some kind of um, writing utensil, you can kind of write down and jot down your ideas. It's just a kind of a yes or no. So each of these objectives that I'm going to um, share with you are either smart or not smart. Yes, they are smart or no, they aren't. So here we go. There's five altogether. Number one, the student will learn about what a compass rose is on a map. Number two, by the end of the unit, the student will be able to list the five Great Lakes explain at least three economic benefits the lakes bring to the region. Number three, by the end of the lesson, the student will know the significance of the Rosetta Stone. Number four, at the end of the lesson, the student will be able to use cardinal directions on a map to locate major cities. Number five, by the end of the unit, the student will be able to compare and contrast two regions of the United States. Okay, let's just see how you did. If I was doing this in a classroom, I would ask students to perhaps go to a different region of the room uh, for this corner, this corner if you think yes, and this corner if you think no, um, and then ask students to defend their answers because inevitably there will be people end up in both corners no matter how cut and dry do you think the answer might be. Okay, so for number one, the student will learn about what a compass rose is on a map. If you said not smart, you are correct. Learn is not a measurable verb. A better verb might be the student will be able to use a compass rose in order to locate cities on a map or in some way where they're utilizing that compass rose. You know, giving a definition even isn't quite the best thing to do here. Um, if students can define it, that's great, but what use is there in that? They need to be able to use a compass rose on a map. Number two, by the end of the unit, the student will be able to list the five Great Lakes and explain at least three economic benefits the lakes bring to the region. Okay, this seems like a lot, um, but it is smart. It is well constructed. It has um, specific knowledge the students will have and the verbs indicate how they are going to show mastery. And believe it or not, it is also realistic for fourth grade and a time frame for mastery is given. Now, if this would have said by the end of a lesson, whew, that's a lot. That's maybe not really something we would expect 
of one lesson to our dear little fourth graders. However, it says by the end of a unit. Okay, that is that is something that fourth graders would be able to uh, be able to explain, given that the major theme of fourth grade is uh, U.S. regions and and Kansas history. So that would definitely be a well constructed unit objective. Number three, by the end of the lesson, the student will know the significance of the Rosetta Stone. Well, by now, you know that if you say the word no in something, it's not smart. <laughs> no, uh, to know something is not measurable. I always say, can you read their minds? <laughs> if you can't read your students' minds, which maybe that's a good thing sometimes, um, then to know something, you, you just can't measure that. You don't know if they know it. Um, a better uh, word might be explain. The student will be able to explain the significance of the Rosetta Stone. Side note here, a lot of people don't know the answer to this question. What is the Rosetta Stone? Um, this is a huge social studies kind of a, a concept here. So if you don't know what the Rosetta Stone is, besides the language learning program, that's not what I'm talking about. But the Rosetta Stone as a concept within social studies and within ancient history. Why is the Rosetta Stone significant? And then on a side note to that, once you find that out, you'll probably understand why the language learning software is called Rosetta Stone. So lots of potential learning here. All right, number four. At the end of the lesson, the student will be able to use cardinal directions on a map to locate major cities. Absolutely smart. The objective specifically lists the skill students will be able to per perform and an application for the skill. It is also measurable, realistic, and time-based. So that's a good solid objective. Finally, number five, by the end of the unit, the student will be able to compare and contrast two regions of the United States. Definitely smart. This can be measured several different ways and is a realistic objective for a fourth grade student. So how'd you do? Hopefully you did okay. Um, I would guess that there's at least one or two that you might have been iffy about and it's all about in the wording. And realistically, some of these can really be debated. I, I wrote them for that purpose for you to have to think and and kind of they could some of them could be debated both ways. So, if you're iffy on some of them, it's with good reason. Section 3, assessment. A review. Defining assessment. First things first, let's define assessment. Assessment is finding out what students know and are able to do. This is different than evaluation, which involves a value judgment. Often evaluation compares students against other students or a certain standard. For example, the state of Kansas gives all students in grades three through 11 specific content area assessments during the spring. These assessments are designed to measure what students know. Whether or not that actually happens is somewhat of a source of debate. Nonetheless, after the students are assessed, 
an evaluation occurs where they are rated on a scale that measures the level of mastery of students on a particular standard. Not stopping there, districts then make comparisons across grade levels and schools between groups of students, making value judgments about those students and their teachers. Assessment and evaluation both play a pivotal role in the education system in all states in our country. Assessment, unlike evaluation, happens continually in the classroom and is both a natural and essential part of a learning environment. Teachers use many different methods, both informal and formal, to determine if students are getting it. The primary purpose of these little check-ins are to improve teaching and learning. If the students understand the lesson, no changes may be needed. However, if students' understanding is low, adjustments to the instruction are warranted. There are many other purposes of assessment. First of all, you need to have assessment to guide your instructional planning. In this way, you can diagnose students' understanding of a concept before the study of it, provide feedback to students on their progress and problems. You can decide how to modify a unit plan. You can identify cultural differences, identify strengths and weaknesses of your students, and also it's a way to provide evidence of success to your students. Another purpose of assessment is public accountability, just like what we talked about with the state testing. It reports student progress to the community. It also compares students across schools, districts, states, and across the nation. And it can report and discuss par with parents uh, their students' progress and problems that they might be having. And finally, you can assess for the purpose of student placement. In this way, we can assign students to pairs and cooperative groups or ability groups for certain uh, particular situations. It also can decide which students require an IEP and it can place children in special programs. Each purpose requires a particular type of assessment that is given. There are three main types, diagnostic, formative, and summative. Diagnostic assessment occurs before instruction and planning. It is used to place students in a special program or simply see what students know about a particular subject. Then there's formative. Formative assessment occurs during instruction and helps determine future planning. Informal assessments, such as observations, group discussions, and individual conversations with students are used. Exit tickets, assignments, and other more formal assessments also can help students assess student understanding. Summative. This kind of assessment occurs after instruction and helps teachers judge students' overall achievement on unit objectives. These are generally in the form of formal assessments, such as paper and pencil tests, performance assessments, or portfolios to name a few. So what constitutes a valid assessment? Writing valid assessments in social studies may seem easy. Teach students about the Revolutionary War, 
Then give them, the, give them a test with 50 multiple choice questions about people, events, dates, and places in the war. Piece of cake, right? Before deciding if this is indeed a valid assessment, there are several considerations that need to be taken into account. Number one, does it match the learning objectives? If the assessment has a whole section on the Boston Tea Party and it was not one of the learning objectives, it is not considered valid. Only assess what has been taught, not because that's the test that's in the provided textbook. Number two, can you tell if the objectives were met through this assessment? If an objective, objective of the unit was for students to be able to analyze a primary source and report their findings, this assessment will not be sufficient. Number three, did the students have enough guided and independent practice to become proficient in the knowledge or skills described in the objective? More than likely, if new material is learned one day and tested the next, this would not be the case. Make sure students have enough time to synthesize and apply information before being assessed. Also, the assessment does not have to be for a grade. The best piece of advice my mom, a 30-year classroom uh, slash administration veteran, gave me was this. You do not have to put everything in the gradebook. For some assignments, it is sufficient to review students' work and make adjustments to instruction from there. Of course, this depends heavily upon the age of your students. A first grade student is not going to be aware of their grade in the class and will complete the work simply because the teacher tells them to. A sixth grader, however, has already figured out that if it is not for a grade, he or she may not really have to do it or do their best on it at least. Sometimes the work our students complete is simply to guide future instruction and can take the form of many different products or activities like discussions, exit tickets, letters, etc. It is up to the classroom teachers to decide what is best for their students in each situation. Using rubrics. A rubric is a common form of assessment in many subjects but is especially valuable in social studies. It is defined as a document that articulates the expectations for an assignment by listing the criteria or what counts and describing levels of quality from excellent to poor. Many effective social studies instructional strategies, including inquiry-based learning and project-based learning, are cornerstones of social studies instruction. These types of instruction are not assessed in a multiple choice type test. They require an assessment that assigns a value to a set of criteria. Rubrics can be used for more than just evaluation. By giving the project rubric to students ahead of time, it helps guide the student's learning and communicates clear expectations of the assignment. Having students make judgments about the quality of their own project helps them take ownership of their work and of the evaluation process itself. As long as it is age appropriate, rubrics can be used with any students who can read well enough to understand what is written on them. A rubric for a second grade student, for example, 
might include simplistic language and symbols such as smiley faces or stars to indicate a level of quality. More complex rubrics for older students will include detailed expectations and a consistent language for evaluating quality. Our discussion for Module 2 will include the reading of several different articles about rubrics, and uh, I'm really excited to hear what your thoughts are about using rubrics and, and maybe talking a little bit about the pitfalls and, and, the, and the things that are really difficult, make using rubrics really difficult. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion for Module 2.